0: In Let's Roll, Todd's wife Lisa reveals what really happened on that ill-fated flight as well as poignant glimpses of a genuine American hero. She talks candidly about Todd's growing up years, their marriage and last week together, and then family moments without him, the devastating day her children learned their daddy had died, how they celebrated his first birthday without him, the mix of grief and joy when she gave birth to their third child, and how she's found the confidence to go on in the face of such tragedy and loss. It's no wonder, that through this unpretentious homemaker and mother, an entire nation can find hope, find inspiration, find strength. Let's roll. As the world awaited the reopening of American airspace after the 9-11 tragedies, Nick Leonard, our helpful United Airlines family liaison, had my sister Holly Brocious booked on one flight after another, only to have them cancelled. Finally, she arrived on Friday night just in time to hear the good news about Todd's phone call. That same night, as further encouragement, my brother Paul and his wife Jet informed the family that they were expecting a baby. We were all excited at the news and I was especially glad to know the baby I was carrying would have a family member around the same age. Perhaps even more significant, although none of us verbalized it at the time, was the reminder that life does go on. In the midst of tragic loss, God was bringing a new set of miracles into being. Early Saturday morning, our friend Doug McMillan accompanied me into Todd's home office to call Lisa Jefferson. As I had done the night before with Nick and Paul, I wanted to relay information to Doug as I received it from Lisa so we we would be better able to remember it. Nervously, I dialed her phone number. Although I was anxious to speak with her, I wasn't expecting the overwhelming emotion I felt during our conversation. I was much more emotional talking to Lisa Jefferson than I had been with Nick Leonard the night before. I think it was because she was the last human link with Todd, and I knew I'd never be able to talk with him again. Nick could read the words off the page, but Lisa could provide a first-hand account of what Todd had said and done. She could tell me of Todd's demeanor, the sound and inflection of his voice, and the faith that surged through him during those last moments. I was already crying before Lisa picked up the telephone. This is Lisa Beamer. I sobbed, trying in vain to maintain my composure. Lisa didn't seem to mind. She just waited patiently until I was ready. First, she asked me some questions based on information she'd learned from Todd, letting me know that it was truly Todd she had spoken to on the phone. Do you have two boys whose names are David and Andrew? She asked. Yes, I do. Are you expecting a baby? Yes, I am, in January. Todd told you all of that, I asked. Yes, he did, Lisa replied. As we talked further, I quickly discovered that Lisa was quiet and soft-spoken, but extremely factual and articulate. I could understand easily why Todd would have related to her and trusted her help in the critical circumstances he faced. She was a strong woman, yet she also seemed to be an extremely caring and compassionate person. With the information Lisa Jefferson provided and the subsequent reports that have become known to me, I've been able to reconstruct what Todd experienced the morning of September 11th. I can picture him boarding the plane and settling into his seat in row 10 for the six-hour flight from Newark to San Francisco. I have no doubt that when Todd entered the aircraft, one of the first things he did was unpack his laptop and pull out some work. From cell phone records, we know that he spoke to Jonathan Omergar at Oracle about their meeting later that day. He also left some other voicemail messages for business associates. The plane was scheduled to take off at 8 a.m., and in fact, the Boeing 757 did push back from gate A-17 at 8.01. But as, as is often the case at Newark International, runway traffic delayed the takeoff. For the next 40 minutes, the plane remained on the ground. Meanwhile, in Boston, American Flight 11 took off from Logan Airport at 8 o'clock sharp. United Flight 175 followed close behind. Both Boston planes were scheduled to fly to Los Angeles that morning. In Washington, D.C., American Flight 77, also headed to Los Angeles, took off from Dulles Airport at 8.10 a.m. Of the four fuel-laden cross-country flights with terrorists aboard, only one remained on the ground, Flight 93. Most of us get frustrated in traffic jams at times, especially when our plans are disrupted. But the traffic jam in which Flight 93 sat that morning may have been a key factor in saving thousands of lives and perhaps even our nation's capital. As irritating as the delay might have been to others, Todd probably took it in stride and viewed the traffic jam as an opportunity to get a little more work done. A bit of time to make one last cell phone call before the flight attendants asked that electronic devices be put away until the plane was airborne. The plane carried a relatively light load that morning. Seven crew members, including Captain Jason Dahl, First Officer Leroy Homer, and five flight attendants and 37 passengers, mostly men and women on business, a few couples on vacation, and several students heading back to school. While for most of the passengers, it was a routine flight, some of the less experienced travelers may have been a bit nervous about airline safety at takeoff. Yet no one knew that four male passengers in their 20s planned to die on that plane. The four Middle-Eastern-looking young men, all deeply religious, were led by Zayed Samir Jarrah, who sat in first-class seat 1B, the seat closest to the cockpit door. The 27-year-old Lebanese man was a licensed pilot who had taken flying lessons as well as self-defense classes in Florida less than a year earlier. Jarrah's cohorts were in seats 3C, 3D, and 6B. At least one of the young religious zealots carried a copy of specific handwritten instructions from Mohammed Atta, the Egyptian ringleader of the four groups of Islamic terrorists assigned to U.S. planes that day. Atta's five pages of instructions, later found at the crash site, included spiritual readings the terrorists were to meditate on the night before the attacks, as well as practical matters such as bathe carefully, shave excess body hair, and make sure you are clean, your clothes are clean, including your shoes. Possibly these instructions were for spiritual purification, or possibly to avoid notice. Most telling were Atta's pointed reminders to bring knives, your will, your ID's, your passport, all your papers. The terrorists were told to clench their teeth when the moment the strike came. They were to shout, Allahu Akbar, Arabic for God is great, because this strikes fear in the hearts of the unbelievers. When the confrontation begins, strike like champions who do not want to go back to this world. The directions were clearly intended for young men going on a mission from which they would not return. Especially perplexing and somewhat frightening are the deluded references to God. Not the God of the Bible, but a God who would endorse murder and hate. A God clearly created in the minds of these men to justify their own evil intentions. Laced throughout the suicide mission notes are exhortations such as, Obey God his messenger, and don't fight among yourselves when you become weak. And stand fast. God will stand with those who stood fast. You should pray. You should fast. You should ask God for guidance. You should ask God for help. Continue to pray throughout this night. Purify your heart and clean it from all earthly matters. The time of fun and waste has gone. The time of judgment has arrived. Hence, we need to utilize those few hours to ask God for forgiveness. Atta's instructions included several promises of eternal life to the terrorists. You will be entering paradise. You will be entering the happiest life, everlasting life. In the last page of the instructions, headed when you enter the plane, the hijackers were given special prayers to say, O God, open all doors for me. O God, who answers prayers and answers those who ask you, I am asking you for your help. I am asking you for forgiveness. I am asking you to lighten my way. I am asking you to lift the burden I feel. O God, you who open all doors, please open all doors for me. The document closes with the statement, God, I trust in you. God, I lay myself in your hands. There is no God but God. We are of God and to God we return. Following the delay, I can't help but wonder what might have happened had it been a few minutes longer, United Flight 93 took off from Newark International Airport across the river from New York City at 8.42am. The plane was still climbing over the New York-New Jersey coastline when, just six minutes later, American Airlines Flight 11 blasted into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The skies were clear on the morning of September 11th, an absolutely gorgeous day in New York, and one of the men in the cockpit of Todd's plane noticed the smoke rising from below. Is everything okay on the ground, he asked, air traffic control. Everything is fine, he was told. Flight 93 continued climbing to its cruising altitude and headed west, across New Jersey into Pennsylvania. At 9.03 a.m., United Flight 175 smashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. With both buildings burning in New York, United Airlines flashed an alert to all its cockpit computer screens. Beware cockpit intrusion. From high above Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, not far from where my parents grew up and where Keith Franz now lived, Flight 93 responded, Confirmed. Ironically, activities in the cabin were quite normal, as flight attendants served breakfast and passengers relaxed or worked. Around 25, one of the pilots checked in with Cleveland's Air Traffic Control Center, which normally takes over guidance of flights as they move across the Midwest. Good morning, one of the pilots said sprightly from the Flight 93 cockpit. By now, the pilots had learned that something was awry in New York, and they calmly asked Cleveland for more information. About that time, Cleveland controllers were receiving bomb threats on the ground, as were controllers in Boston, possibly in an an attempt to create further fear and chaos and to distract controllers from tracking the hijacked planes. A minute later at 9.28, the Cleveland controllers clearly heard screams over the open mic aboard Flight 93. In Sarasota, Florida, President Bush was reading to a class of schoolchildren when he was interrupted and told of an apparent terrorist attack. Aboard Flight 93 and the three other doomed planes, the attack wasn't apparent. It was deadly. The controllers radioed the plane, but there was no answer. After about 40 seconds, the Cleveland controllers heard more muffled cries. Get out of here, an English speaking voice implored. Get out of here. Whether the crew member was frantically yelling at the hijackers or warning someone else who may have attempted to offer assistance is unclear. What is certain, however, is that the captain and co-pilot were yanked out of the cockpit. Passengers, including Todd, later reported seeing two people lying motionless on the floor near the cockpit, possibly with their throats cut. No one is certain how the terrorists got into the cockpit Some speculate that they preyed on an older flight attendant threatening to slit her throat if the pilots didn't come out of the cockpit. Or they may simply have broken through the thin door that separated the cockpit from the cabin. Perhaps they waited for an open door, then barged into the tight cockpit, slitting the throats of the pilots while they were still strapped in their seats. On the cockpit voice recorder, there were sounds of someone choking. As soon as the hijackers took over the plane's controls, they disengaged the autopilot. The plane bounced up and down, and Arabic voices could be heard reassuring each other. Everything is fine. Apparently, the hijackers didn't realize that the microphone was still open, and their words were audible to other aircraft as well as to controllers on the ground then-controllers in Cleveland heard one of the hijackers out of breath from the struggle or possibly from lugging the captain and co-pilot out of the way. The heavily accented voice, most likely that of Jira, said, ladies and gentlemen, it's the captain. Please sit down. Most genuine captains of American jetliners have a fairly good grasp of English grammar. This man did not but his ominous message stunned the passengers nonetheless. Keep remaining sitting, he said. We have a bomb aboard. People in the control tower and in other planes nearby heard the hijackers telling the passengers aboard Flight 93 to remain seated, although within the next few minutes, the flight attendants and passengers in the main cabin, including Todd, were herded to the back of the plane to rows 30 to 34 near the galley. The heavily accented voice came over the air again. This is the captain. Remain sitting. There is a bomb aboard. We are going back to the airport to have our demands. Remain quiet. About that time, the voice recorder reveals that the hijackers must have realized their mistake. They shut off the open microphone, assuming they had shut down the flow of information to the ground. But back in the cabin, the communication airwaves were crackling.